Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode of Three Spooked Girls. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. We were able to get going in a matter of minutes. From the initial account setup to choosing our sponsors, everything was so quick and the platform was so user-friendly. Honestly, it was so easy to get started. Also, with Podcorn, there's no middleman. And we love that they include podcasters of all sizes. It was super easy to browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set our own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast. And Podcorn is here to support you every step of the way to ensure you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for the brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when we monetize. Head to the link in the show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, Jessica, one of your co-hosts. And as always, I am joined by my better half of the podcast, Tara. Hi, Spooksters. This week, we are going to be tackling a big topic. We're going to be talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. I think both Tara and I were like, oh, okay, this is just going to be a case. We're going to talk about the bombing and everything like that. And then it kind of like for me, I know I had a lot of feels during this. Mm -hmm. It's definitely... A big topic. It is. This week, we're not going to be doing a drink. We're just taking a little break from it. Just wasn't really in the headspace for that. Mm -hmm. But you can find us on all of the social medias out there in the world. Well, not all of them, because I'm sure there's some we don't know about. But like, you know, (laughs) the main ones. Uh, That would be Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. We also have a couple Facebook groups. Our main Facebook group for all of our listeners is Three Spooked Girls Official. It's great. I love it. In this time where things are a little uncertain, it's kind of been this nice little ray of sunshine. I go in every day and get to interact with you guys. Mm-hmm. And you're always making us laugh. And <laughs> I feel like there's some of you who are like, my goal today is to make as many people laugh in that Facebook group as possible. And you are crushing it. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's been great. <laughs> we also have a couple Facebook groups for our patrons. If you are a patron of the show, go to patreon.com slash three spooked girls or look at your login information and you would be able to get the links for that. 
Mm-hmm. There's some really fun things that happen that are for patrons. So make sure you definitely check those out. If you would like to be a patron and support the show, just head over to patreon.com slash three spooked girls and you can sign up there. Or as always, Tara has created a beautiful link tree in the show notes below and you can click there and it'll take there. Speaking of the show notes, did you guys know that we have a P.O. box? <gasps> what? We do. We do. And some of you have sent us some really like nice little cards and stuff like that. And we really appreciate, we love them. Mm-hmm. And if you want to just head to the show notes and you can find that address. Yes, it's in all the main episode show notes for you guys. We would love to get letters because I feel like snail mail is kind of a dead art. And I love it. <laughs> I know. I love snail mail. I actually just got a card from Tara yesterday and I was like, oh my God, I was so happy. And I brought it inside and I like sprayed the Lysol and then ran it through it so I could open it. And I was like, she definitely used a glue stick on this thing because it's not open. (laughs) (laughs) There's tape on it. (laughs) Oh, well, I was like, this isn't working. (laughs) It was really good. It was like stuck on there. Oh, that's awesome. So now we're going to go ahead and take a quick promo break and we'll be back in a minute to start the content of this episode. Hi, true crime recruits. I am Margot, host of Military Murder, a show where I have combined my love for the military and my love for true crime to bring you military true crime cases. It's like true crime, but instead of crimes committed by Joe Schmo, the cases I cover are committed by private Joe Schmo or veteran Joe Schmo. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. On the show, I've covered the gruesome 1993 love triangle that led to a soldier's decapitation, the infamous 2007 case of an astronaut who drove cross-country, allegedly in a diaper, to confront her romantic rival. And most recently, I covered serial killer BTK, who is an Air Force veteran. I hope that you'll join me and my true crime army every Monday as I navigate these military true crimes. You can find Military Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now go on, go subscribe and listen right now. Hey guys, I'm Sarah. And I'm Stephanie. And we're the hosts of Dead Time Stories. Dead Time Stories, with a Z, is a weekly podcast where we tell you stories of ghosts, hauntings, mysteries, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, the generally eerie, spooky, and all around weird. If you like scary stories, witty banter, and classy broads, we're your ghouls. Gals. Gals. Some of our stories include Eastern State Penitentiary. No. And where is it? Does it sum up 12? The Gettysburg Dime Museum. They were like, show starts at five, Mr. President. He was like, thank you, five. <laughs> no, 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 Stephanie. He was like, thank you, five. <laughs> Fort Mifflin. So the Americans burned down their own fort. They were like, oh, you, you, you want this? You want this? Come Come and get welcome it. to Philly. <laughs> <laughs> and more. New episodes are posted Thursdays at midnight on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Listen and subscribe, rate and review today. Well, welcome back from that quick little promo break. So how the episode is going to work is I'm going to come at you with some backgrounds on Timothy McVeigh and the events leading up to the bombing. And then Tara is going to take it over a little bit right before the bombing. And then we'll most likely have some discussion at the end mm-hmm. or during or something like that. <laughs> All around, you know, you know. Yeah. And a lot of my, my content's going to heavily focus on Timothy himself. Mm-hmm. So let's get down to business. Okay. 
Timothy James McVeigh was born on April 23rd, 1968. He was born to Mickey and William McVeigh, and he is of Irish-American descent. He was the second of three children, and he was their only son. His parents would end up divorcing by the time Timothy was 10, and he would be raised by his father, William, in the Pendleton, New York area, which is kind of, I think it's kind of a farther out suburb of like Buffalo. I don't know New York that well. Mm-hmm. While in school, Timothy was the victim of bullying. And in high school, even he had a really, I think it's a really dumb nickname, but I could understand as, I mean, I've never been a teenage boy, but I have two brothers, so I kind of understand. They called him Noodle McVeigh because he was like long and flinky. Mm-hmm. And I could see how that would probably like screw someone's head up. Yeah. Because he was bullied so much, Timothy actually used to escape the bullying mentality or like the victim mentality of it by fantasizing about the retaliation he'd get on those who bullied him. Mm. Because people know this, I'm like, you should probably have gotten help. But okay, this was like the 70s, 80s. To most people, they would describe him as a shy, withdrawn person when he was an adolescent. Only a handful of people who knew him knew he was outgoing. And he was actually a lot better with like younger children. He was very outgoing and helpful and wanted to make sure that, you know, they got all the help they needed. According to his priest or pastor, he was outgoing and was like a great older brother type to those who needed. His neighbors, the McDermott's, actually used to have him babysit because they knew how reliable he was and he was a great babysitter. So if they would ask him to babysit, they know their kids would be taken care of. If one of them got hurt, he would like, you know, mend their wound or he would just, you know, make sure they got to bed. And he just was a really good caregiver. So it was kind of like, this is kind of the first time you're seeing the duality of Timothy McVeigh, the two sides where he's like this shy victim of bullying. And then in another part of his life, he's this like, outgoing leader who really, I mean, the priest even said that he taught his nephew how to play basketball. The kid was like 12 years younger than him. So he was really a great big brother. And from what I could tell, like looking at interviews and like reading stuff about him, he was kind of closer to his younger sister. And they had that like older brother, like loving sister relationship. And when he was like younger, he only had one girlfriend and he did mention to a journalist later in life, it was hard for him to impress women. He didn't really have that skill. So I would say he was definitely socially awkward. However, Timothy was very computer savvy and he actually ended up hacking a government computer system when he was in high school with something called Commodore 64. And when I went to the wiki page to look what the hell this thing was, it's like a thousand years old looking. I was like, what? However, it was one of the most like, like I read just a little note on it and it was like the highest sold model of a computer ever. I was like, oh, Hmm. yeah. So it was a lot of like coding, not a lot of like clicking, like so a lot of like written code. Mm -hmm. And at his high school, which was Starpoint Central High School, he was voted most promising computer programmer. Wow. That's a very specific title. Right. I was like, don't you just get like best smile. Right. You know, best dressed, like most promising computer programmer. (laughs) But other than that particular work, like his computer work, Timothy was not a good student. Mm. Average or below average. He ended up graduating high school in 1986. So, you know, he's a full 18 years older than me. I was like, damn. Right. So during this time of adolescence, well, I should say in the area of Pendleton, 
New York, guns were very common because this was like a suburban. And in fact, one of the documentaries I was watching, they said that on like hunting season, they would just like close the school down because no one would go. And that's kind of like in the area that Tara and I grew up in, like my high school, when like certain hunting seasons would be open, a lot of the students would be out because it was a lot. It was a way that a lot of families fed themselves throughout the winter as well. Mm -hmm. So Timothy was introduced to firearms by his grandfather, and he became quite obsessed with them. He loved them his whole life. So kind of the dynamic of his family is Timothy's mother, after the divorce, just kind of like abandoned him. Mm. So he didn't really have like the maternal figure in his life. Mm -hmm. He became very close with his neighbor, Mrs. McDermott, and she kind of became that like pseudo mother hen figure in his life. When he turned 18 and could get like a handgun, like a pistol, he actually asked her to sign his pistol permit. I don't know what that means because I don't own a pistol. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if like in the state of New York, you have to get someone to like vouch for you, maybe. I don't know. Question marks. Didn't research it. (laughs) But when he was younger, people would ask him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said he wanted to be a gun shop owner. And he was a big supporter of Second Amendment rights and advocacy. And like a weird thing that he would do is he would often take firearms to school to impress his classmates. I'm like, that doesn't happen now. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Mm -mm. This was also like the 80s. Mm-hmm. I still feel like taking guns to school would be bad. Probably. After high school, Timothy briefly attended Bryant and Stratton College in Buffalo, New York. However, Timothy dropped out after just like a couple, like a year or so, not very long, and started working for an armor car guard company. You know, like the the people who go pick up money from like retail stores. Mm-hmm. And his coworkers said that he was extremely obsessed with guns. One of his coworkers even said that he came to work dressed like um. Pancho Villa. Oh. He's that the Mexican revolutionary general. Mm-hmm. I hope I said that right. And that he was wearing, I always pronounce this word wrong, bandoliers. I don't know how to say it. I apologize. It's a pocketed belt that holds ammunition, usually hung like a sash over the shoulder. So, you know, like when you see like the cartoon figure that has like the two things. Yeah. So that's kind of what he looked like. Yeah. And he came to work dressed like that one day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's what Timothy did. It's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's not fine. Don't don't dress like that and go to work. Mm-hmm. No. You'll scare your coworkers. In May of 1988, 20-year-old Timothy McVeigh enlisted into the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia. Timothy actually began to really shine in the military. It was almost like he was made for the for the military. His love of guns grew and he spent much of his time reading and like learning about the guns and the ammo he could use, sniper tactics, and all about the explosive weapons he could get his hands on. This would pay off as he became the top scoring gunner with a 25 millimeter cannon. And he would shoot those off of a Bradley fighting vehicles, which if... You're wondering what that looks like. It's tank-like. It's like a smaller tank. And if you watched anything from the Waco episode we did, like if you went and watched any of those, it's actually those type of vehicles. And Timothy took pride in his Bradley fighting vehicle, his little tank. In fact, he was known um, while other soldiers would go off and like, you know, party. I love <laughs> I love what the um, the guy, this guy on a documentary said. It's either on like mugshots or it's on like the actual documentary. But 
He said, while the other soldiers went off and got their $1 pitcher of beer and $3 lap dance, I'm like, where the fuck are they getting a $1 pitcher of beer and how do I get to sign up? Is this like a special thing at at Fort Benning? Think what decade it is. Think what decade it is. I still feel like that's cheap, though. I mean, there's some sketchy bars around that base. So no, you do not want that beer, Jessica. (laughs) That beer comes with a special treat if I ordered it. Like, the girl wants the beer, the girl gets the beer. (laughs) But what he would do instead is fill his backpack with, like, rocks and, like, march around post. He was known to purchase, like, armor all and go polish his tank. He was kind of being described, like, in this as he was kind of like the quintessential G.I. Joe. He was all about the army. He was all about shooting and being a good soldier and whatnot. And so he's what the U.S. government wanted in a soldier. He was well-trained and a competent soldier. So Timothy, who ended up getting orders to a new duty station at Fort Riley, Kansas, actually ended up deploying to Kuwait during Operation Desert Storm, a.k.a. the Gulf War, which lasted from August 2nd, 1990 to February 28th, 1991. The purpose of the war was American troops were going in aiding Kuwait, who had been invaded and occupied by the Iraqi army. While he was serving in the Middle East, Timothy was highly celebrated. Using his Bradley fighting vehicle, he could hit a target a thousand yards away. He was interviewed later about his time in Kuwait. He discussed killing an Iraqi soldier by decapitating him with cannon fire, which was considered really weird because most people don't use like a tank to kill one person. Typically, it's like spray and pray kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this was on his first day in war. And he was highly celebrated and promoted to sergeant. And they were like, this dude is awesome. But there were some conflicting messages with Timothy and his views on war. At the beginning, he told his family and friends back home that he didn't enjoy the killing. He didn't like the whole, like, bloodshed aspect of war. However, to his unit, he was the loudest person to engage in battle, like, propaganda of sorts. It was said that he would be the first to yell, blood makes the grass grow, which is, like, the most disgusting sentence that has ever been created. And I guess this was kind of the chant over there at the time. And he would actually get other soldiers riled up. They actually said that Timothy was a really good gunner. A lot of soldiers felt safe when they would go out into battles with him because in that particular war, more U.S. soldier deaths happened from friendly fire. But someone said if there were 10 targets out there and only eight of them were Iraqi targets, he'd only hit the Iraqi targets. Like, he was really good at it. So... The other soldiers really liked him and he would see that the morale was slipping was they're like marching on in these battles. So he actually rewired his tank to blast music and he would blast like heavy metal music or rock music as like they would go into battle to get them more pumped up. And it was like a way that he could like help keep them safe because during this time, it's like all this shit is flying around and like they could die at any second. And, you know, he was trying to be a good leader, which is different than how he was as an adolescent, where he was more like shy in bigger groups. As time would go on, though, he began to change his views on the war. Mrs. McDermott was talking about how he would write about the children that would come up and be starving and be asking for like food or money or something. And the U.S. government told them, like, don't talk to these kids, like ignore them, ignore them. And, you know, for him, he's like, Mrs. McDermott describes as like, Timothy was a boy who couldn't let a puppy go hungry, let alone a little kid. And the reasoning behind that is in 
the Vietnam War, they used children as bait. And so they would send a child out and soldiers would run out to save the child and then they would blow them up or become under fire when that was happening. So that's why they said, like, if children are coming, just leave, back away, don't like go near them. Another thing that didn't sit well with him is that he would either be told to or others would be told to execute surrendering prisoners. And he's like, but they're surrendering. Their guns are down and they're surrendering, but we're still like ordered to kill them. And then he would see the devastation that happened on what is called the Highway of Death, which was this road, which is Highway 80 in Kuwait. And it leads from like Kuwait City into Iraq. And just all along there, it was like devastation. There were so many death and just like destroyed human lives and belongings and things like that. Basically, the U.S. would do like jet bomb attacks and they were using these things called MK-20 Rocket Eye number two cluster bombs or known as CBU-100 cluster bombs. And they were anti-tank bombs and basically they would land and they were smart and they were really effective because a pilot could say, I want to detonate it for five seconds after it drops out in the wire. So it was really highly effective of just like kind of destroying areas. And they actually, along that road, don't even know the death toll. They know it's over 10,000 at least. So because of all this, Timothy began to question the U.S. government and why we were there and why, like, we were in the Gulf War. He felt that what the media was portraying wasn't why they were fighting. Because the media was portraying, we're going over there and, you know, we're helping. (laughs) But that wasn't necessarily what he felt while we were fighting over there. While serving over there, Timothy received several accommodations. He received a Bronze Star, a National Defense Service Medal, a Southwest Asia Service Medal, an Army Service Ribbon, and a Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. For like such a short time. Right. While he was in basic or at Fort Benning, he met two fellow soldiers by the name of Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. And they bonded over their love of guns, survivalism, and oddly enough, reading white supremacist literature. One of the things the three gentlemen had in common is they read this book called The Turner Diaries, which is basically the white supremacist Bible. Tuck that away. So he came back stateside and he basically was called back before the end of Desert Storm because he was selected to go through basically Green Beret training. So one of the things I thought was interesting is this war journalist was talking about how, like, when they bring soldiers home, it's this whole process that they come home as a big group. Well, because Timothy was coming home for this very specific thing, he actually ended up flying all the way back by himself. So he's leaving this, like, war-torn area with all of these, like, deposing views in his head, and he doesn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And because he was over there, like, you would think that he would be, like, in the best shape of his life because he was in Iraq. But he actually wasn't because he was most of the time just sitting in a tank. So he came back and he began the special services 21-day assessment test. And he actually ended up washing out, like, two days into it. So after he ended up washing out of this program, he stayed in a couple, like, a few more months, but then eventually received an honorable discharge in 1991. At this point, when he went home, he ended up going home to Pendleton, New York, because that's where he's from and his family is. And he actually decided to seek help for his what he thought was Gulf War syndrome. Unfortunately, he was denied help because they just didn't think there was anything wrong with him. Mm. Which, can I just for a second, 
can we get that doctor who fucking denied Timothy McVeigh help? Can that person be held accountable as well? Because let's talk about a misstep here. I get triggered by this because I have people in my life who have PTSD and I dated someone who had PTSD and a lot of times it's hard enough to get people to ask for help or admit they need help. And so when someone says, I need help, mental health is a real thing, people. Yeah. And then when they try to go and then that happens, then it just makes it so they don't want to ever ask for it again. And then worst case scenario, things like this happen. Right. And unfortunately, most of the time, it results in them taking their life, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. because they have all of this inner conflict and they don't have anyone who believes there's something wrong with them. Yeah. Anyway, so at this point in time, Timothy starts looking for work and he's just kind of doing like a bunch of like dead end jobs with long hours that really don't mean anything. And he also begins to write newspapers complaining about things like taxes and how the money is going to the government and the government just doesn't deserve the money. At one point, the U.S. Army says that they overpaid him like, I don't know, $1,300 or like $1,200 or something like that. And they're like, you need to pay us back. And he was like, whatever, take everything that I have, that kind of thing. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that he would kind of look at things around him that seemed kind of of injustices. And in New York at the time, women were being arrested for carrying mace to protect themselves. So he was writing his legislators to be like, you have to not arrest them for having to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. I think if at this point in time, if Timothy had had a really good support structure, his family just doesn't really seem that interested in him. He do- he doesn't have like a purpose. He's listless. He's just like a wandering soul. I think if he had gotten something substantial, like if he had gotten because this is one of the times like he had like a misstep with a girlfriend. He tried to date a coworker, and a coworker was just like, no. And I think if he was able to like form that kind of an attachment, he probably would have. I'm not saying that he wouldn't have gone down this path because I have no idea, but it may not have resulted in this. So after a while, he just kind of decided he needed to start doing something with this time. And this isn't a very short period of time because this is like he gets out in 91 and then is home. But like by like 92, it's like we're talking about like a span of a year. So after he gets home, after a little while, he gets bored and he decides to start visiting his army buddies. The two that we mentioned before, Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. (laughs) What a name. It is. And he began complaining and becoming very paranoid about the army and the government. In fact, at one point in time, he makes a comment to Nichols, Terry Nichols, that he has a like microchip in his butt that like the the government and army can track his movements. And he's like becoming more and more awkward around women other than these like two friends or friends that he's made in the army or at gun shows, because that's the other part of his life is that he starts traveling around to different gun shows around the country because I don't know why gun shows were suddenly a huge thing, but they were. So he starts doing that. Other than like those type of friends, he's not making lasting relationships that are healthy. So he's in the same mindset. So he's like with Terry, who is pissed off at the military and pissed off at life. And then when he goes to visit Michael in Arizona, Michael is angry and pissed off at life, but also addicted to crystal meth. But we'll get there in a minute. Oh, yeah. So he began driving back and forth, visiting his friends. And like I just said, like while he was out visiting Michael, he was like, dude, I got something you got to try. And he gave him crystal meth for the first time. And while he was out there, because he was also Michael's best man in 
Michael's wedding. Mm -hmm. So he tried marijuana for the first time and other cannabis products. And he tried crystal meth and became very addicted to crystal meth. And they think that's how he ended up being able to drive back and forth all across the country is that he would just get like super fucking high and then just drive for days. Oh, God. Meth basically kind of has that like it's that speed effect. And so like over the next couple of years, he becomes more and more right wing xenophobic KKK military group esque very like neo-Nazi interested. Like at this point in time, like one of the documentaries was like he had the Turner Diaries dog-eared. And the Turner Diaries is basically this fictional book based on blowing up an FBI building in Washington, D.C. using a truck bomb. Hmm. Right? So he's very like, I'm going to do this. He's read it. He's absorbed it. He believes it. He's a white supremacist. He's, you know. Mm -hmm. In 1992, Ruby Ridge happened in like a really brief history on Ruby Ridge so that if you don't know, you can understand. Basically, Ruby Ridge is this guy named Randy Weaver. He was a white supremacist who moved his family from Iowa to northern Idaho, like basically 50 miles from the Canadian border because he didn't want to like... He wanted to be his, like, they didn't even have electricity or anything. It was just like a cabin up there and like this little homestead. He wanted to protect his family from not white people. Not white people and not Jewish people. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand that because like Jewish people are white. Like a lot of Jewish people are white. But I digress. It's just a question that I'm always going to have because I'm like, I don't want to deal with that to get that answer. So anyway, what he didn't know at the time is that Randy actually moved his family about 60 miles north of like an Aryan nation group that like a little colony, they began to become friends and they would hang out and like have family barbecues. They'd invite the Aryan Brotherhood or nation up for a barbecue at their house or they would go down there for some sort of like social mixture. And Randy actually ended up joining the group during this time. Our great buddies at ATF, which you know that Tara and I are like, these people do not seem smart. (laughs) They put in an undercover agent into this. Apparently, that's what they fucking know or known for is like, you know what? These people might have guns. Let's go like, let's go put an undercover agent in there. I mean, I'm sure this happens everywhere, but like the 1990s were not good to ATF. Let's put it that way. Or they were not good to the 1990s. So basically, he gets in there and he kind of identifies Randy as needing money And they kind of developed this undercover agent and Randy developed this relationship, friendship. And ultimately, the ATF agent ends up entrapping him by saying, hey, dude, I know you need money. So, like, could you make these sawed off shotguns for me? And Randy thinks about it and ultimately decides because he needs money, which is fucking entrapment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he does this and he gets arrested and he's like, what the flying fuck? Uh, I get arrested. This is bullshit. And he's like, you know what? Fuck the government. I'm going to go and hide out at my house. And because this is ATF, it's federal. And when something when you miss your court date for federal court, the U.S. Marshals come after you. This isn't like a bounty hunter comes and picks you up and you stand for the judge and slaps your hand like it's the fucking U.S. Marshal. Mm -hmm. And they get involved and they have no idea that what happened that ATF entrapped this dude. So what they think is that Randy Weaver is this like crazy sawed off shotgun person who's like helping supply the Aryan Brotherhood with all these guns, which is not the case. Basically, there's a bunch of missteps. It's a super clusterfuck. There ends up being like this 11 day standoff. Several people died. There's several firefights. Like the very first firefight, two people end up dying. And one is Weaver's 14 year old son, Sammy. And then an agent and then also their dog. Hmm. And then several days later, 
Randy and his wife Vicky went out to because they couldn't really go anywhere. They were pinned down. There was like surveillance cameras and all these things and helicopters and whatnot. Randy and Vicky went out to like check on their their son's body because they live in the fucking mountains of like Idaho. And they wanted to make sure their son's body was okay. And when they do that, two ATF or FBI agents or somebody, a marshal, a person, ends up firing in and hits Randy in the shoulder. But then as they're going into the house, there was enough, there was only two shots fired. One hit Randy and then the other one went through the door and hit Vicky in the face and killed her instantly and ended up injuring their friend, Kevin Harris, who was there. A couple of days later, Randy, his remaining children, and Kevin surrender. But because of Vicky's death, this sparked the white supremacist nation to come out and really get angry at the government because they called it straight up murder because it was like this whole case that was like so misunderstood, but like a 14-year-old boy and a woman died. So that was really upsetting to Timothy. He was like, what the fuck is this? And also because of the fact that like every white supremacist group out there is talking about it, he's being fed their agenda. And then you flash forward like the next year in April of 1993, Waco happens. And that is just a few weeks shy of Timothy, basically just a few weeks shy of him turning 25, shows up to Waco to watch the situation unfold. And to make money, he actually sold anti-government, extreme pro-gun bumper stickers to people, which I'm like, ballsy move, Timothy McVeigh. And in like the Waco documentary, they interview him and he talks about he's clearly wearing his military hat, Desert Storm camo hat he had. And... You know, he ends up leaving Waco before because he goes there in March and then he ends up driving up to Terry's house, which is in Michigan. And while he's there, it's four days shy of his 25th birthday. He's standing in Terry's living room watching the Waco siege unfold with the house coming down and the building coming down. And these two just (laughs) just like fire and gasoline, these two, they start talking and it is anti-U.S. government. They're pissed because they think the government's like Waco and like Ruby Ridge. They're coming in to take these people's guns and what's happening to the country. It's very untrustworthy. And so the two people like start growing their white supremacist views. And he definitely has been racist for a long time since Nichols first met him, in fact, when Terry met him. Because when he was at Fort Benning, Timothy bought a white power t-shirt and was actually written up for it because he bought it from a group of KKK members who were protesting servicemen who were wearing shirts that said Black Power around post. And he also, when he moved up, he earned the reputation of assigning Black servicemen jobs that no one wanted to do, like, so overseas, like, when they were deployed. You know, like, if you've ever watched the movie, what is it, Jarhead, where They make them, like, burn the poop. He would frequently use, like, racial slurs. So Timothy and Terry began to start experimenting with small explosives (laughs) using, like, household chemicals. Timothy also started selling ATF hats that had bullet holes in them, which I'm like, okay, again, with the ballsy move here, McVeigh. And he became more and more open with his anti-government rhetoric, like he didn't care who was listening. And then his small experiments with household chemical products moved on to making pipe bombs and other small explosives. During this time, he decided to start traveling again, and he went all across the country. He ended up going to Area 51 to take pictures and to, like, be like, I can take photos where you say I can't to, like, basically flip off the government. He ended up going to the UN operations in Mississippi. He thought there was, like, some sort of Russian conspiracy there. And then he actually went back to Waco to see the devastation that had happened, like, in the aftermath once they, like, done some cleanup. 
They started buying in bulk ammonium nitrate agricultural fertilizer because there was this like rumor that that was going to be banned. So it wasn't unusual that people were buying it in bulk. A lot of people were buying it in bulk. Mm -hmm. By this time, Timothy thinks that the U.S. government is the ultimate bully because right about this time, President Clinton and the U.S. Congress got the Brady Bill passed, which basically was like restricting gun ownership. Like minors shouldn't have like a handgun. And at this point in time, like the militias like took off in the country. All these like white supremacist, neo-Nazi supremacy groups were just like taking off. It was mainstream news. It was like on Phil Donahue, these people like spreading their hate rhetoric. And so this is also where Timothy begins to fantasize about taking retaliations against the ultimate bully, like I just said, is the United States. And at this point in time, Timothy decides to target a federal government building. He starts collecting materials to make a truck bomb, and Tara's going to tell you about that. So after looking into a lot of different federal office buildings, and I mean, he looked at a ton, like different states, like even in Oklahoma, he looked at a building in Tulsa, Little Rock, Arkansas, Dallas. Like all these other places, he decided to choose the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And in December of 1994, Timothy and his friend Michael Fortier, which we've talked about, took a 30-minute tour through the building, and this included the daycare. And I get really fucking pissed off every time documentaries are like, we're not even sure if McVeigh knew that there were children. It's like, motherfucker, that's part of the tour. He fucking knew. Mm Mm-hmm. And they decided that they were going to use a truck bomb that was outlined in the Turner Diaries. During this time, he's talking about this with Michael, and I think he's talking about it with more people. Like, one of the things I really liked is an author who wrote a book about this. He was saying that though money never directly changed hands with Timothy from, like, a white supremacist group, there was definitely rumors that they were, like, somehow funding him because how they were paying for all these materials is they were, like, selling guns at um, like gun shows and one I'm like where are they getting all the guns and two who's buying said guns so it could be like here here is this gun you're gonna pay an inordinate amount of money for this gun (laughs) that kind of thing I have that answer for you oh good Tara's got me yeah we're gonna hear about that in just a few so Timothy picked the date It was just like a little bit before he told the guys, like, we're going to get ready and we're going to do this. And Michael, like, bows out and is like, nope, I'm not doing this. I'm married. I got a family. I don't want to fucking do this. But Terry is, like, apparently down to still do this with him. Even though I think I think he was married, too. Right. I don't know. And I don't. Yeah, he's a poop head. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like he might have been married. I can't remember. I'm sorry. If you choose to blow up a federal building over, like, staying with your wife the rest of your life, you're a horrible human. Well, I mean, you're a horrible human anyway. Yeah. I was like, well, either way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But you're more of a horrible human. Mm. So Timothy picked the date, which was going to be April 19th, 1995. And it was actually significant for several reasons. April 19th, 1775 is actually when the Battle of Lexington and Concord kicked off, which was basically where a lot of historians point out that this was like the no, the point of no return for the colonists. This was the battle that basically, like, if they didn't win the war, they were all dying. Mm. So this is kind of like white supremacists look at this. From what I was gathering is that they're like, this was the point where, like, America became America, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, 
If you listen to our last true crime episode, we talked about Waco. And Waco, the siege happened on April 19th, 1993. So just two years earlier. And then also on April 19th, 1995, Richard Schnell was executed. And he is an American spree killer who was a white supremacist who killed two people. And he was seen as a martyr for the white supremacist movement. And it is noted that Schnell, I think his name is Schnell. I don't give a fuck if it's not because honestly, he's a bad person. Uh, <laughs> plotted to bomb the Merle building in the 1980s. So it was kind of like, motherfucker. It's like Timothy's fucking creepy ass way of. Ugh. Like an homage. Yeah. Revenge thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And. Obviously, like, I went and looked up other famous things that were on there, and I was like, oh, this is so bad. But fun fact, the very first Boston Marathon was held some year in the 1800s on April 19th. And I was like, wait, there was an, like, I was thinking these were all tragedies. So I didn't read the thing. I was like, oh, there was more than one bombing of the Boston Marathon. And then I read it, and then I was like, no, Jessica, this is just an important events thing that happened, not like tragic (laughs) events thing that happened. So I am now going to hand it over to Tara, and she is going to tell you about the rest. The rest. I didn't even know also how to, I was like, how do I classify this? She's going to tell you about stuff. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're now at the point. Plans made. Target's been chosen. Time for Terry and Tim to to move on forward. I got tired of typing Timothy, so I just put Tim. It's not like any gross thing, how, because I know you gave me shit when I called Charles Manson Charlie, but it's just because I'm lazy with typing. So here we are. <laughs> Let me disclaim that. It's okay. I wrote Timothy, like, if you see my notes, because Tara types hers and I, I handwrite mine. I wrote Timothy so many times. I'm like, if this was a drinking game, yeah, I'll be drunk. Like, <laughs> five minutes in. Oh, but yeah. So in their minds, they had to get to work. So they started collecting up the supplies that they would need for the bomb between a combination of purchasing and stealing said supplies. Everything they got, they stored in rental storage sheds. A lot of the way he went about things involving the explosives and such, he took from the book that Jessica brought up a lot, the Turner Diaries, Mm -hmm. literally to the T. The book has a truck bomb. He has a truck bomb. It goes to an FBI headquarters. He's going to a federal building, like parallel, exactly the same, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And the other interesting thing is in the story, that attack happens at 9.15 a.m. And that's pretty close to the time of the actual attack. So in August of 94, Tim purchased nine kinesticks from, and I'm probably saying some of these wrong because I don't know anything about explosives, obviously. Uh, from Roger E. Moore. And they actually try to get Roger involved to help them with things. He's like a gun dealer, but he says no. Smart guy. Yeah, smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the following month on September 30th, Terry purchases 40 50-pound bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer from Mid-Kansas Coop in McPherson, Kansas. And he also purchases another additional bag That's 50 pounds just a couple weeks later on October 18th. I'm guessing it's because of the, obviously we know what it's for, but it's like probably under the radar to buy it at a store because of everybody buying everything. And then also in some of the articles I read, it said that that amount for a farmer, for like a cornfield type of thing, that would have been normal. So really that wouldn't have raised any red flags on the retail side of things. So I was like, all right, whatever. Okay. Then the two joined forces and decided to rob Roger's home. And they took a ton of stuff. They took $60,000 worth of guns, gold, 
silver, jewels, and they also used Roger's van to transport all of it. So I'm assuming that's how they paid for stuff, too. Awesome. They <laughs> they ripped some dude off. <laughs> yeah. Such a class act. Yeah. Tim would end up writing a letter later to Roger trying to convince him that it was the government who stole from him. So, like, agents went into his house magically and took all of his shit. I mean, conspiracy theorists would definitely believe that shit. Right? In October of 94, Tim shows Michael and his wife, Lori, a diagram he's drawn of the bomb. And in that Netflix doc that Jessica talked about a couple of times, we actually see a bunch of his hand-drawn pictures throughout it. And this is one of them. He basically planned to construct a bomb containing more than 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer mixed with about 1,200 pounds of liquid nitromethane and 350 pounds of Tovex, including the weight of 1655 U.S. gallon drums, which the explosive mixture was to be packed. The bomb would be a combined weight of 7,000 pounds total. Originally, he wanted to use rocket fuel, but it was too pricey for his budget. Aw, sucks to be bougie on a budget. <laughs> and on top of all of that stuff he had bought already, there's more. Oh, good. <laughs> right? He decided he needed to make a trip to the Chief Auto Parts Nationals National Hot Rod Drag Race Championships at the Texas Motorplex. And when he was there, he acted like he was just a motorcycle racer in the market for some fuel. The first sales rep he ran into was Steve Lassure. Lassure, I don't know. And he told him he needed to purchase 55-gallon drums of nitromethane. Steve was like, hmm, that's weird. And he told him no. So he had a couple reasons for that. One, Tim didn't have any bikes with him or his NHRA competitor's license. So he had no proof that he was who he says he was. So Steve was like, let me not sell you that, all that shit. Let's not. Let's fucking not. I like that people like that he's running into are like, no, I'm like a legit person and I don't want to <laughs> deal with your, you know, slightly sketchy ass. Kick rocks, kid. Right. But he didn't let that stop him. Of course not. He went to go try to find somebody else who would sell to him. And he did. He ran into a different sales rep named Tim Chambers, but he only got three of the drums, the, you know, the things from him. Mm -hmm. But again, it just didn't sit right with Steve. And he also knew that the riders typically only need about one to five gallons to ride. So why was he wanting 55? Especially when there was no race in the area that weekend for what he was claiming to be a racer of. So he decided to contact the FBI and give them the tip about this. But, of course, Tim left and that was that. Damn it. I know. Well, at this point now, Tim has a storage shed with seven crates of 18-inch Torvex sausages, which you're like sausages. But they're basically these water gel explosive things. And the, the sausage is just the nickname. I don't know. I thought it was funny. I don't know if you've seen a picture of them, but they look like sausages. It looks like a sausage. Yeah. But I was also hungry when I was reading, uh, doing my research on this part. So <laughs> then I had to uh, make breakfast bowls. <laughs> you're like, I want some breakfast sausage. Thank you. That's what happened with that. <laughs> <laughs> but he chose those because they were safer to transport and also to store versus dynamite. Mm -hmm. He also had 80 spools of shock tube and 500 electrical blasting caps. All of these items had been stolen from a Martin Marietta aggregates quarry in Marion, Kansas. So a rock quarry, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I just like that they stole all this shit. Nothing was happening. Yeah. I don't understand. It's just like, okay, like you would think that there would be like a ton of people out looking for this shit. Right. It's crazy. I guess just because of the, maybe because of the time period. I don't know. Maybe. But I mean, they had surveillance cameras. So I'm like, what the fuck, dude? And of course, because Tim's obviously a planner, he made a prototype to test out and they tested it out in the desert. They said they did this because it wouldn't raise any suspicion and they wouldn't really draw much attention. Where is just the random like park ranger that's in that desert? Right. Oh, there's a big old blast the fuck out. Like somebody had to hear that shit. Right. It's weird. I just I don't get it. I don't fucking get it. So on April 14th of 1995, Tim rented a room at the Dreamland Motel. And I'm sure it's exactly how it sounds. I saw a picture. It looked pretty fucking dreamy to me. Kidding. Yeah, right? When he was there, he used the name Robert D. Kling. This was an alias he had for himself. He had come up with the name because he had known someone in the army with the name Kling. And he was also a Star Trek fan. And he said it reminded him of the Klingons. So he liked it and used it, which is fucking random. Yeah, he was kind of a nerd. He was into, like, comic books and stuff like that. And I mean, I like comic books and, like, Mm -hmm. have one on my nightstand next to my bed. But, like, I also don't blow up federal buildings. Yeah. Besides the Star Trek fandom, he also chose to go with this alias because he said he had very similar physical features to the real Kling, the actual guy. But uh, more on Dreamland later. So the next day, he that's when he would go and rent the moving truck that would be used for the bombing from Ryder. It was a Ford F-700, so just a basic moving truck. The trip at Ryder was just pretty routine. Nothing out of the ordinary there, but it just because the context of it, it just makes it creepy, I think, is that when they are talking about this, they say that the, you know, the reps like, oh, do you want any insurance on it? Do you think you're going to need any extra days versus, you know, what we're writing down? And he's just like, nope, I'm good. He could have not been an asshole and have gotten the insurance so they could get a truck again. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they figured something out. I, I'm sure, but I'm just saying, like, or he could have just not done this at all, you know, that too. You know, the normal fucking thing. Mm-hmm. So the day after Tim got the truck, him and Terry drove over to Oklahoma City on the 16th separately. They were dropping off the getaway car, which was a yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis. They had strategically parked it a few blocks away and they removed the license plates. They also left a note in the window, which conveniently covered where the VIN is, and said on the note, not abandoned, please do not tow, we'll move by the 23rd, need a battery and cable, and left us sitting there waiting for them, and then the two went back to Kansas. Over the next two days, April 17th and 18th, this would be when the bomb construction would happen. The two loaded everything that they had been collecting into the moving truck, and then they drove down to Geary Lake State Park. Inside the truck, they nailed boards to the floor of the cargo area so they could hold the 13 barrels in place. And then they started mixing the chemicals using plastic buckets and a bathroom scale. So they're still on their budget, but you know. Mm -hmm. They filled each barrel to weigh nearly 500 pounds. Tim added more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay because he could ignite it at a close range with his pistol in case the primary fuse failed. And yes, this would have resulted in him killing himself as well, because obviously if he shot it to ignite it, he wouldn't have been able to get out. Right. He also packed down the aluminum side panel of the truck with bags of the fertilizer to direct the blast laterally towards the building. 
The barrels were arranged in the shape of a backwards J. Later, he said that was for pure destruction power, that he would have put the barrels on the side of the cargo bay closest to the building. But if he had done so, this would have obviously distributed the weight unevenly. And being that this was 7,000 pounds, he either would have flipped the vehicle, could have broken an axle, or would have been leaning. Basically, something that would have drawn attention to him when he did not want that. Or... If that happened, like, blow him the self the fuck up. I mean, yeah, but obviously he doesn't care about that because he was willing to do that. I meant before he got to the building. Oh, this is true. Yeah, like, before he got there, if, like, he hit a pothole and he tipped or he went around a corner too fast. Mm -hmm. It's also smart that he used, I mean, not smart, and I hate to give him credit, but, like, using, like, a moving van because people drive slower with moving vans because they're typically not driving something that big. Right. So people kind of excuse it. Yep. All or most of the barrels contained metal cylinders of acetylene, probably saying that wrong, which was intended to increase the fireball and the severity of the explosion. So to make it worse. Mm-hmm. Then Tim added a dual fuse ignition system accessible from the truck's front cab. He also drilled two holes in the cab of the truck under the seat. And then there was also two holes in the body of the truck as well. From there, there was one green cannon fuse that was run through each hole into the cab. These led from the cab through the plastic fish tank tubing to two sets of non-electric blasting caps, which would ignite about 350 pounds of the explosives that they had stolen from the quarry that I mentioned earlier. The tubing was painted yellow to blend in with the truck and duct taped into place into the wall to make it harder to disable by trying to pull on it from the outside in case... I don't know, somebody tried to pull on it or whatever. Pretty sure if you knew what it was, you're not going to fucking touch it. The fuses uh, were set up to initiate the 350 pounds of Torvex, which would then set off the barrels. Of the 13 filled barrels, nine contained ammonium, nitrate, and nitromethane, and four contained a mixture of fertilizer and about four gallons of diesel fuel. They decided to leave the extra materials and the tools that they used to make everything in the truck so that it would get destroyed on the blast to get rid of any evidence type of thing. So to kind of do the math for you, all of that, because, you know, they stole so much of it. Apparently, the bomb only cost about $5,000 to make. Bombing on a budget. Apparently. Like, my brain is popped right now. Right. Because I'm like, excuse me, what? Right. Okay. It's crazy. Something to note here is that there was actually conflict on this day between the two. Terry had started to have cold feet and wanted out, but Tim was like, fuck no, and told him that if he didn't stay and didn't follow through, he would kill him and his whole family. So yeah, I guess he was married and like, obviously like his brothers and stuff. Yeah. So obviously that's why, you know, he was like not wanting to do it or whatever. He stayed and he helped him. But he's like, you know, after this day, I'm done. I'm not going with you. You go to Oklahoma City. I'm going to go home. That's what happened when they were done. They split their ways. The whole process only took about three hours, which is not that long. So fucking short. Yeah. I think I spent longer researching this. No, for sure. (laughs) And Tim traveled with the truck to Junction City. So originally the plan was to go through with the bombing at 11 a.m., but Tim changed his mind. And I'm sure it has to do with that book because it said that he woke up at early dawn and then decided the time of attack was going to be at 9 a.m. And then from, you know, his fucking Bible, I swear, is what it is. The attack in that story was at 9.15 a.m. Early in that morning, he 
got in the truck and he started to make his way over to the federal building. With him, he had two envelopes. One had pages of the Turner Diaries and the other had some of his, you know, revolution, sketchy, scary, white supremacist stuff like bumper stickers and things like that. And he was also wearing a white tee that said Six Semper Tyrannus, which means thus always to tyrants, which if that sounds kind of familiar, it's what John Wilkes Booth shouted immediately after assassinating Abe Lincoln. White supremacist from the beginning. Yeah. So Tim would get to Oklahoma City at about 8.50 a.m. And at 8.57 a.m., the Regency Towers Apartments lobby security camera caught on footage the truck heading towards the federal building. At this time, Tim lit the five-minute fuse, and three minutes later, he was still about a block away, he lit the two-minute fuse. Then he parked the truck in the drop-off zone, which is right under the daycare, and exited and locked the truck. As he headed to get, you know, to his getaway car, he was seen by somebody. He was seen by, I believe, like someone who was a Marine or something. Yeah. So Tim had planned out this route because there was a YMCA close by and he said he knew he could walk. And when he got to the alleyway next to the YMCA, he would be covered and then he could run to his vehicle because he wouldn't, you know, be in like such public eye, so it wouldn't draw attention, anything like that. And that guy I mentioned in the documentary, he's talking about it, and he's like, he thought it was weird that a moving truck came up, but then when he saw Tim get out, he was like, oh, he must be a sergeant or something, so he must just be reporting into something. And then he's like, but I thought it was weird that he started walking away from the truck and then just, you know, obviously you're not going to fucking stare at somebody. He, like, went around the corner, and he's like, okay, whatever, and then... Disappeared. And... What happens is just horrific, and that's not even the best adjective. I don't think there's one single word that can really describe the magnitude of how devastating this attack was. If you are not triggered by, I guess, blood and gore and things like that, then I would say definitely watch it because the documentary will actually give you a true understanding of what these people went through. You know, or even if you go to YouTube, there's plenty of news clips, like two minute videos, three minute videos, things like that. Mm -hmm. But I liked this because this documentary, because we got to hear from a lot of the first responders. We heard from the federal agents that were working on this. We heard from victims and we heard from parents of victims because, like I said, we both mentioned there's the daycare on site. So in total, 168 people died, 19 of them were children, and over 680 people were injured. And if that doesn't kind of just give you some idea of this, like how big of a fucking like explosion this was, I'll give you some more kind of like hard facts. So one third of the building was destroyed, which in turn created a 30 foot by 8 foot deep crater on Northwest 5th Street next to the building. The blast alone either destroyed or just damaged 324 buildings in a four-block radius and shattered glass in 258 buildings. And the glass alone accounted for 5% of the deaths total and 69% of the injuries outside of the building. So it's not even just getting the people on just the building. It hit. It's surrounding, too. That's how big of an explosion it was. And the blast itself destroyed and burned 86 cars around the site. 
And of course, with the destruction of all of these buildings and everything, it left hundreds of people homeless and shut down so many office buildings and things like that. And the whole thing all together, it was estimated to have caused at least $652 million worth of damage. And they basically equated that the damage from this blast was equivalent to over 5,000 pounds of TNT and could be heard and felt up to 55 miles away. There's a couple science museums and stuff that have the uh, the Richter scales that measure earthquakes. One was there in Oklahoma City. It's the Omniplex Science Museum, which was 4.3 miles away. And then the other one was in Norman, Oklahoma, and 16 miles away. And it recorded the blast as if it was a 3.0 earthquake. Wow. My uncle lives in Norman. It's crazy. Watching the documentary was just really difficult because we see all these, you know, first responders and stuff. And I told Jessica, too, I was like, when I do my write up, I'm going to stick to these hard facts because that will help me keep my shit together a little more. (laughs) But I think what was just the most terrible thing was, well, not even the most, but just a couple things that stood out to me was there was one of the like firefighters who's like this big, stocky cowboy macho man dude. And he just starts crying and it's just, oh, God. I was watching it like in real time. I was watching it and I was texting Tara. And when he started crying, I started bawling Mm -hmm. because it's like for me, I have family in that city. Yeah. My cousin Margaret was in an office building a mile away when the bomb went off. And she said that her office building shook like an airplane hit it. I very rarely get emotional on these things, but like this did hit me hard because it makes me think about like a mile stood between Timothy McVeigh and someone I love dearly. And I thought about it like, what if something had happened? What if her office building was on the route he drove and someone ran a red light and hit him? Like Tara and I do joke about people being assholes and stuff. And it's a, it's a way for us not, it's a way for me not to get into this space. But like... 19 innocent children died and mothers and fathers were like watching first responders pull babies out of a building. And that could have easily been my family because of hate. Mm -hmm. It's just it's fucking heartbreaking. And we hear from him and then we hear also from a doctor who there was a woman, she was stuck under a beam. It was her leg. So they had to amputate her leg to get her out. The like the proper tools they had, they weren't working like they kept breaking and, you know, things like that or whatever. So he took his pocket knife and they had a scare that there was a second bomb in the building because, you know, there's federal employees in there. So they do trainings and stuff. So it was a fake one. But they thought it was real. So they're telling them, you know, get the fuck out, get the fuck out. And they were just like this because this guy's old now. He was just like, I'm not leaving her. We're not leaving her. We're taking her with us. So he literally cut her tendons with a pocket knife to get her out of there. And then we hear from a couple whose parents for, you know, we hear a couple parents. uh, One, one of her kids did not survive. But the other ones, it's yes, her children, their children both did survive, but their son had severe brain damage. And even, you know, decades later, he's dealt with complications his whole life. He was a toddler. Mm -hmm. 
I can move on. It's fine. We can talk about Timothy's stupid ass. No, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm crying. I mean, it's no, just, no, no. This Saturday, it'll be 25 because today is what? The 15th or 16th? I think it's I think the anniversary is Sunday. So yesterday, like them hearing it now, because when they're hearing it, it's the 20th. I was like, yesterday's the 15th. I don't understand. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 25 years. Yeah. I think about that. And it's like. I think that this documentary was made, like, in the early 2010s, if that makes sense. I think it was, like, either four, it's between 14 and 17, I can't remember. It was on PBS. Yeah, it was in seven, 2017. Okay, which makes sense, because I watched it, like, in 2018 for the first time. Mm-hmm. That doctor, he didn't just be like, I'm not going to leave her. He was like, I wasn't going to leave Donna. Like, he knew her name. This was personal. And like he talked about it and he like crawled in basically face first, like at her knee. And he's in the most compromising position. And my father-in-law is a retired fire captain. And it makes me think of like the brave men and women around this country who continuously look what other people would think would be scary and horrific in the face and basically say, fuck it, I'm going to save this person. And then to get all emotional and personal, because, you know, sometimes I only think of myself. (laughs) My cousin is a chiropractor in Oklahoma City. If you're in Oklahoma City, his name is uh, Joseph Garlett, and he's fantastic. You can see him. Just Google him. He's great. Plugging family. Um, (laughs) But he volunteered as a first responder because they needed help, and he went down to help. And I think about the men and women who, in that documentary, they just left their office building and they just ran towards the building to help. Yeah. Timothy McVeigh did this horrible thing. But like Americans, we have this like weird inner strength where it's like when shit like this happens, we almost, I don't know, like we get this strength that it's like we can fight it. And that's what those men and women were doing. And it's, it's this ugly thing that led to people being able to help others. But I'm going to keep crying if we keep talking about this. So let's move on. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you how uh, Timothy fucked himself in a very, like, Ted Bundy fashion. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Planner here, he's left in his yellow getaway car, right? Well, guess what? He gets pulled over. He got pulled over because um he didn't put the license plates back on the car. And he was speeding. Whoops. <laughs> And while the officer is, you know, just thinking it's going to be a routine traffic stop, he notices a bulge under his jacket and he asks him, hey, do you have a weapon on you? And Tim says, yes, I do. He does end up getting arrested due to carrying the weapon illegally because his carry permit did not carry over into Oklahoma. Plot twist, I was not really expecting to have happen for him to get arrested, (laughs) but okay. (laughs) 90 minutes after it happened. Yeah, it's like surveillance footage, like a dash cam, and it was like 10.30 mm-hmm. a.m. And I'm like, you did not get far at all. No, no, we didn't. So, of course, at this point, the FBI and everybody in America is like, who the fuck did this? We need to get them now. Well, originally they thought it was possibly a terrorist attack from the Middle East. And, of course, tips started flying in everywhere from every single state. They said literally every state. And I was like, every state? People in Alaska even called you? Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) there's people everywhere. I was just like, damn. (laughs) But they did find something that would help them, something Tim obviously did not account for. They ended up finding the axle from the truck, and it had the VIN on it. They were, of course, able to trace this back to where it came from, from the Ryder facility. 
So they go to the writer rental place and they get Tim's alias that we talked about earlier. They also do a couple sketches as well so they can, you know, have this to kind of show people when they're interviewing other businesses and things that are in the surrounding area. And of course, the motel is right there. So they go there to see if he had been there. The employee that actually helped him, her name was Leah McGown, and she was working, and she's like, oh, I did help somebody with that name. And she pulled up the register from the motel, and while he did originally have the reservation with his alias, when he was filling it out, he accidentally signed his real name. Womp womp. Leah had said, quote, people are so used to signing their own name that when they go to sign a phony name, they almost always go to write. And then they look up for a moment as if to remember the new name they wanted to use. That's what he did. And when he looked up, I started talking to him and it threw him, end quote. So at this point, the FBI have Timothy's real name instead of this fake name that he's been using. And they put it into the national database to see if he's been arrested or any kind of info they can pull on him where he's at, that kind of shit. And wouldn't you know, he pops up because he had just been arrested for carrying his firearm without the proper permit. So they contact the police back in Perry, which was where he got arrested, and told him to hold him because they needed to talk to him. Because fun fact, he was actually getting ready to have his hearing to get released from this arrest. Like walking up to said judge to stand Uh in front so the judge would be like, pay this money and go away. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And when the agents got there, they asked him, do you know why we're here? And he asked, does it have to do with the bombing? So... Obviously, they knew they got the right person. (laughs) And then, of course, he was not going to cooperate. He instantly asked for a lawyer and all of that. It was supposed to be kept on the down low to get him transferred back to Oklahoma City. But, of course, this news spread so quickly and it got a huge crowd and the media and everybody came. And that's when America saw Timothy McVeigh for the first time. During this time, the federal agents, they get a warrant to search Tim's dad's house. And they ended up wiring it and all of that so they could listen to those conversations and things like that. And then after this, they take a look at the address on the fake ID, which is, of course, James's address, Terry's brother, because it's in, like, Michigan. And so they go over there. And then on the 21st, that's when Terry finds out, oh, these fuckers are looking for me. And he actually turns himself in. They do a search warrant at Terry's house, and they find all kinds of incriminating evidence at his house, including ammonium nitrate and blast caps, the electric drill used to drill out the locks at the quarry, books on bomb making, a copy of Hunter, which is a 1989 novel by William Luther Pierce, the founder and chairman of the National Alliance, a white nationalist group. Yuck. Awesome. Right? No thanks. And they also find a hand-drawn map of downtown Oklahoma City, which is on the documentary as well. It maps out, like, where the car is going to be next to the building and where he's going to go by the YMCA and all of that. Mm -hmm. A receipt for 2,000 pounds of fertilizer and a calling card, which is really important. This helped them a lot. It had the fake name of Daryl Bridges, which I'm going to assume is probably Terry's alias. I don't know. But again, it had the brother's address on it, Mm -hmm. which matched Tim's ID. So like everything is linked. And then another reason the calling card was so important was because they were able to look up the call log and everything. And there was over 600 calls, I believe like 650 something. 
And these were all made to different chemical companies, different raceways and other retailers and stuff like that, basically where they were looking and going to get supplies and whatnot. Also, this is when they learned about Michael because there was calls to Michael on it as well. Yeah, because long distance used to be quite expensive. So you just you paid with a calling card. Yes. For all you people who don't know, I only know this because my parents told me (laughs) we had a long distance plan. (laughs) So after about nine hours of interrogation, Terry was formally held in federal custody until his trial, which I'll update on the outcome of his stuff at the very end. And then on my birthday, on my fourth birthday, April 25th, 1995, James was arrested, but he was released after 32 days due to lack of evidence. I don't know. He doesn't really seem like too much of a key player. So it's like, okay, whatever. I kind of feel like James was the guy that like at the beginning of all this shit, like was like, yeah, you should take action. And then was like, I'm the fuck out of here. Right. (laughs) Get out of my house. (laughs) Right. And then Tim's sister, Jennifer, was accused of illegally mailing bullets to him, but she was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against him. As a hostile witness. Yes. The crime task force for this was deemed the largest since the investigations of the assassination of JFK. This was the largest criminal case in America's history, with FBI agents conducting over 28,000 interviews, 3.5 short tons of evidence, and collecting nearly 1 billion pieces of information. The federal judge, Richard Paul Match ordered the venue for the trial to be moved from Oklahoma City to Denver, citing that the defendants would be unable to receive a fair trial in Oklahoma. The investigation led to the separate trials and convictions for all three men. Like I said about Terry, I'll update on Michael at the very, very end as well. So trial for Tim. So this began on April 24th, 1997, and this didn't go exactly how he wanted. No. He wanted to go with a necessity defense, meaning that he was in imminent danger from the government, that his bombing was intended to prevent future crimes by the government, like Waco and Ruby Ridge. He believed that if some of the jurors were able to hear about what, quote, actually happened at these two places, his bombing would be justified. Uh, no. But his lawyer, Stephen Jones, was like, hmm... Let's not. And they had a strained relationship, not only because of that, but because Tim thought that he was actually being a like a news source because stuff starts to leak out, which I'll kind of touch on in a minute. Tim was pissed that he didn't want to go his way. Nothing. But basically, Stephen Jones opted to just try to poke holes at what he could in the prosecution's case to get the question of reasonable doubt. He also believed that Tim was taking far more responsibility for the bombing than he should be. Basically that, of course, he was guilty, but that Tim was essentially being like a martyr and sacrificing himself for all of these white supremacist radical groups he's in and shit, thinking there's more people to it kind of thing. But the judge did decide that the evidence concerning the conspiracy stuff, there just wasn't enough to be admissible in court. Also, stupid, Stephen Jones tried to argue that nobody saw him there when we know there's someone who saw him there. And guess what? The dude was on the stand as a prosecution witness. So you look like a dumb piece of shit. I think at this point, any defense for Timothy McVeigh is 
you look like a dumb piece of shit. Right. And then, of course, after this, he tried to go into saying the FBI did a sloppy investigation. They didn't spend much time on it. Basically, they spent two weeks on the actual bombing. And then after that, they spent the next two years just focusing on Tim and meh, 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 meh type of thing. And it's like, okay, just please stop. Please stop. When you catch the person who did it. Right? What else are you going to do? Yeah. Like, are you supposed to go out and be like, let's see if we can drum up some other people? Like, no. And at this point, Timothy is basically saying, I did it myself. So dumb. So another kind of key thing that came up was there was an unmatched left leg found on the bombing site. Although they believed it was from a male, it was later to be that of Lakeisha Levy. She was a member of the Air Force who was killed during the bombing. So terrible. They had to reopen her casket because they had to swap out the leg, basically. I don't know how else to say that. Like, she was buried with a different leg. Oh, God. And the leg they took, they couldn't do any kind of DNA testing and stuff on it because, or they couldn't extract any DNA because it had been embalmed and everything. Okay. So the defense tried to be like, that was the second bomber's leg. This is John Doe number two. Um, I like mentioned for two seconds there was a second person in the drawing and they never full on said who this was. And this honestly could have just been some other person in there. May not have even been anybody related kind of thing. From what I understood is like, Basically, they had this description of a guy that was at the Ryder place the day before. Mm-hmm. The guy who worked at the right the Ryder truck place because they looked similar because they were both like former military and they had the same kind of haircut. I think he was just like, oh yeah, and he was in here too. But there was a eyewitness that day who said that he saw Timothy McVeigh sitting in the passenger seat of the car because he said he was like standing outside waiting. And I don't know the validity of this guy's story. He said he was waiting outside for these guys in a truck to come pick up some computer parts. And he saw the rider truck coming and he's he assumed that that was the truck for him. So he was like waving him down. And he says he remembers that Timothy McVeigh was in the passenger seat because he looked at him and Timothy McVeigh looked at him and was like scowling or making a face. And the guy said that he yelled something. And when the reporter asked him, like, well, what did you yell? He's like, do you honestly want to know what I said? And he's like, yeah, I want to honestly know what you said. He goes, I looked at him and I said, fuck you, you skinhead looking motherfucker. Oh, God. Yeah, that's on the mugshots. It's on the sources page. Yeah, it's just, and he's like, I don't know how credible this guy is. A lot of times, like disasters like this, people come out and they are like, I was there. I did this or I did that. And this could be this guy, but he says that he saw the truck and it was, I think, on the route in which Timothy took. So it wasn't like out of the question that this guy could have seen him. But he swears that he saw Timothy sitting in the passenger seat of the truck, which is weird because then the guy who testifies later says that he saw Timothy get out of the driver's side of the truck. But who knows if Timothy just like, I don't know, killed the dude and slid over and went out. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, back to the leg. So the prosecution was basically just like, this could have also belonged to any of these other victims who passed away that had been buried without a left leg. And we're not going to exhume their bodies just to prove a point. Right. And I mentioned kind of for a second that there had been some media leaks 
apparently conversations between Tim and his attorney came up and it was just all this stuff. And it like included something about a computer desk that was given to the press and all this other stuff. And Tim thought that this was like what made it so he would never have a fair trial. Wham. So a gag order was put on, you know, so that nobody could say anything, talk about anything, all that stuff. The defense was also allowed to enter into evidence six pages of a 517-page Justice Department report criticizing the FBI crime lab and David Williams, one of the agency's explosive experts, for reaching unscientific and biased conclusions, quote. The report claimed that Williams had worked backwards in the investigation rather than basing his determination on forensic evidence. So it's just kind of like this big back and forth thing. And I'm not going to go through all of it because like the prosecution had over 100 witnesses. The defense had 30. Like we could go on all day long about this. So the jury deliberated for 23 hours. On June 2nd of 1997, Tim was found guilty on 11 counts of murder and conspiracy. And then on June 13th, the jury recommended that he receive the death penalty. And then on May 1st of 2001, to skip ahead, the Justice Department announced that the FBI had mistakenly failed to provide over 3,000 documents to the defense counsel. The Justice Department also announced that the execution would be postponed for one month for the defense to review the documents. On June 6th, the federal judge ruled the documents would not prove him to be innocent and let the execution proceed. President W. Bush approved the execution, so Tim was executed by lethal injection at the Federal Correctional Complex in Terry Hout, Indiana. I might have slaughtered that name, but in Indiana on June 11, 2001. And this was transmitted on a closed circuit television so that the victims or the relatives of the victims could witness his death if they so chose to. And he was also the first federal execution in 38 years. That's crazy. Right? And then, like I said, I would give you the quick update on what happened to Terry and Michael. Terry was found guilty of 161 counts of murder with life in prison without the possibility of parole, and Michael was sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities about the attack, but he was released in 2006 and put into the Witness Protection Program. Go for him. I mean, not, not good for him. Yeah. But I will say that he he was, he testified heavily against McVeigh and the fact that, like, yeah. he was arrested. When they basically found the calling card and everything like that, he said he would like wake up in jail and he'd be like in panic because these dreams he was having was that he was trying to call people and warn them about this. And like that was his biggest regret is that when he decided to like not participate any longer, that he didn't call anyone. And I get that like that's easy for someone to say when they're, you know, when they're trying to be like, I backed away from this. But I don't know. He testified like heavily against him. And Mm -hmm. Timothy isn't stupid. He's actually very well, like he's very articulate. Like I've read several of his things. He basically in like 1998 wrote a letter with like a white supremacist, like right wing anti-media type thing, basically saying that the reason he did what he did was because like that's how war is. And that when they were in Iraq, they targeted buildings where, what did he say? Like, this is why I know this, this, he targeted this building because it had like a daycare in it. Because he said that it was a shield. 
And that that's exactly how in Iraq, like, because at that point in time, in 1998, they were in Operation Desert Fox. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were targeting buildings of that. And he's like, you condemn me for doing it. But then it's like, if it's in war, it's okay. And it's never going to be on like the cover of like USA Today or whatever the publication he said. And I don't know if it's true or not, because I, you know, in 1998 was in like seventh grade. So I have no idea. <laughs> but I hate that he he tries so hard to just justify what he did. And it's so sick. It's disgusting. Well, now that we're done with that bag of trash. Mm -hmm. So they did build a memorial and it's really beautiful. You can see it on the wiki page. I grabbed the little paragraph about it and I'm just going to read through it and kind of describe it to you. The memorial includes a reflecting pool flanked by two large gates, one inscribed with the time 901 and the other 903, the pool representing the moment of the blast. On the south end of the memorial is a field of symbolic bronze and stone chairs, one for each person lost, arranged according to what floor of the building they were on. The chairs represent the empty chairs at the dinner tables of the victims' families. The seats of the children killed are smaller than those of the adults lost. On the opposite side is the survivor tree, part of the building's original landscaping that survived the blast and fires that followed it. The memorial left part of the foundation of the building intact, allowing visitors to see the scale of the destruction. Part of the chain link fence put in place around the site of the blast had over 800,000 personal items placed there and collected by the Oklahoma City Memorial Foundation is now on the western edge of the memorial. North of the memorial is the Journal Record Building, which now houses the Oklahoma City National Memorial Museum, an affiliate to the National Park Service. The building also contains the National Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism, uh, which is a law enforcement training center. So if you're local to that and haven't, I'm sure you've been there if you're local to it. But if you haven't, I would definitely say to go check that out for sure. Yeah. But that is all I have on that for tonight, today, whenever you're listening. <laughs> right. It's tonight for us, for sure. Tonight for us. Yes. Yeah. I know it's like these kind of stories are hard to tell, but for the victims and the families that survive, this story needs to be told. And people need to check people. Like, racism is never okay. And, you know, these groups that are like... These xenophobic groups that are just out there, like, spewing hate. I hope that by the time, like, my children are grown, that hate isn't like this and that the world is a better place. Mm -hmm. So that's going to wrap it up for us today. We will see you back here on Thursday when we are doing a special episode. It is our Spookster Club patron select episode. If you are a $10 patron or above, you one of your perks is you get to pick a topic that we will research and then talk about here on the show and do an episode. So we're going to do that this Thursday. If you are a $10 above patron and you haven't had an episode, Y'all need to tell us what you want to do because we can't do it until you tell us because you have to say this mm -hmm. is what I would like you to do. And this upcoming Thursdays is going to be Lindsay's. So Tara and I are like very excited about it. Let's put it that way. Oh, man. Super excited. Yes. So we will see you then, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.